right. Man, oh man. The view is pretty cool from up here. Uh, good morning, everybody. A um, couple things. I wasn't planning on preaching outside until a couple of days ago. Dave Axis asked if uh, I'd be willing to because the weather was going to look good. And, you know, with the way things came about this week, we, thankfully we've been able to, to have a service outside. And so it's so cool to to hear the body singing this morning and just to see everybody's faces. I normally don't wear a tie, uh, but on the fifth Sunday of, of a month, um, which it falls, a few of us men around church wear a tie to honor Keith Funk, um, a godly man, former elder here at Cross Point, and we're just uh, thankful for the time we got to know him. So this morning, our text that we're going to eventually be in is uh, Luke 6, 27-36 as we continue on. Um, and it's regarding loving our enemies. And, you know, this is a tough portion of Scripture, uh, one that I really, you know, read through quite a few times, prayed about how I wanted to, um, you know, go about talking about it, because there's, there's a few different things we can talk about with, with going in that direction. But I, I really felt Lord, the, the Lord laying upon me uh, and talking about our relationships and how, specifically how God relates to us and how we in turn relate to others. This, ta- this text really calls for us to, to check our pride and selfishness at the door. And much like Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, this text in Luke has a radical way of thinking, a countercultural teaching both to then the scribes and the Pharisees and to us today in our relationships. Jesus is always about living differently in the world, right? To be set apart from the world, to, be, uh, to live in the world but not be of the world. And we see this as he expounds and raises the bar in, in, uh, with the Ten Commandments, specifically with, with murder and adultery. You know, if we were to hate one another, uh, we've already committed murder in our hearts. If we were to look upon somebody else with a lustful intent, we've already committed adultery in our hearts. And you know, might be thinking, you know, geez, I can't, I can't measure up to that. How am I supposed to do that? And we can. We can't measure up. And we don't measure up to those standards when we rely on ourselves and strength to do that. So in the past week, I want you to reflect and think, you know, in the department of loving others, how are we doing? I think if we were to reflect back, we, we'd see that our love is, is conditional upon what, what, other, what um, others can do for us. How does this affect me? How does it benefit me versus having a love that is for the greater good of the other person? Over the last uh, a few months ago, my wife and I, we read a book by Paul Tripp, and a great uh, pastor. Um, I recommend any of his books. Um, this one in particular was on marriage and, and loving our spouses. And in one chapter, he says the effect that we often tend to use the love for our spouse as a vehicle to get what we really want. Let that sink in. We often tend to use the love of our spouse as a vehicle to get what we really want. And that just really kicked me in the gut. And I think, you know, to speak for Sarah as well, both of us really, you know, felt convicted in that and how we, how we use to, you know, situ- situations and, and things to manipulate to what we really want, to use that love that's not the way God designed as a vehicle to get what we really want. Sadly, our selfish desires can rear their ugly heads and we can use people for our 
good and glory versus God's good and glory. But by God's goodness and his grace, he doesn't leave us in a state where we need to go about it ourselves and find a way to love others within our own strength because we would fail miserably, and we do fail miserably. Romans 8.8 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Apart from God, we aren't going to do what God calls us and wants us to be. And as believers in Christ, though, he makes it possible to do the impossible. And we see that through the whole storyline of Scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, God doing the impossible. Our oldest son, Landon, he finished seventh grade and uh, definitely be a year to remember, but I had to laugh, you know, just thinking back through the year, uh, just seeing what, he's, what they've been doing um, and much others, you know, in that, in that grade level are doing with computers and how, I mean, just not things that I were, even thought were possible. And I'm not computer savvy by any means for those who know me, but I do know that a computer is, is only as good as its hard drive and mainframe. Okay, when Jesus is Lord of your life, we live with a different mindset. We operate under a different hard drive and mainframe, if you will. Our operating system is running differently than the world around us. And as believers, this is what's called spiritual regeneration. Okay, our hearts are made new. We have new desires, different desires. You know, God giving us the Holy Spirit to help us to live out with that new mindset to grow in our sanctification as followers in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Praise the Lord for that, right? As we read our text today, I want us to think about how God relates to us. We're by nature, we were once children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says. Enemies of God, as James 4.4 4 says. But as Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were enemies, while we were snubbing our nose at God's grace. He still died for us, for those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians talks about. We received his benevolent love when we are unlovely. We receive his mercy when our motives are selfish. God doesn't return evil for evil. And through this text, he wants to establish the same pattern of living that he shows us in order to be ambassadors of Christ to others, to be image bearers as we're called to be. So with that said, and as we read our text here, I want us to see three ways that we can love others biblically. Okay, one, we love others by abiding in God. We love others by praying for others. And we love through Christ-like living. So go ahead and turn with us if you, if you have a Bible or get to it on your device, if you can see with the glare in the sun. Uh, Luke 6, 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods to not demand them back. And as you wish what that others would do for you, do also for them. For you love those who love you. What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. May the Lord add His blessings upon our reading today. So as we read this section of Scripture, if we had a gauge inside us that measured pride and selfishness, it would just be all the way to the red, just, just pinging. Because when we hear the words, love our enemies, what? Why? I can't. I can't do that. Do good to those who hate you? Why should I? Pray for those who abuse you? No, that's not going to happen. Not with what... Not with my life experiences. These are some major obstacles and to get over. Some that may seem like unscalable mountains based on, on what's been done to us and what we've experienced. Okay, this is something that will take time because these are deep wounds that, that need healed. So I want us to ask ourselves, how are we defining love? Are we defining love as an action or as a feeling? The Bible describes love as an action. Versus the world and our flesh describing love as a feeling. When you, when you see love as a feeling, it's very situational, right? It's circumstantial. It can be predicated on what has been done to and for us. Much like a contract. You do this for me, sure, I'll love you in that way. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Yeah, we just keep moving along. As long as everything's going good the way I want it. But you see... Our feelings, it's like a roller coaster ride. They're up and down. One day our situations, our circumstances are going great. We're on mountaintops. Then we're down in valleys. It's just a constant up and down. It's a, it's a roller coaster ride. It's, it's one where if someone were to look from the outside looking in, be like, boy, that's how, they're, that's how they define love. Ugh. That's not a ride I want to be on. That, that's, that just doesn't look appealing to me. See, when love is treated as a feeling, there's also a lack of commitment because we are deceived by our heart's desire and in wanting to have control of the situation. So how do we obtain what seems to be this unattainable love? Well, it starts with our first point of abiding in God. It's God's workmanship through His Word and through His Holy Spirit that refines us, it, it shapes us because this is the work that we are not capable of of ourselves. It's, it's a mountain that we cannot scale. Jesus opens verse 27 with, but I say to you who hear. Okay, right off the bat, but I say to you who hear. We need to trust Jesus' words for our lives because he knows us best, right? He's the one that created us. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and through the word of Christ and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay, allow God's word to do an overhaul of our mindset, to place our faith in his good teaching. As, as a believer in Christ, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that, is the, that has the, gives us the capacity and is the catalyst in knowing how to love in a God-honoring way and giving us the desire to love, okay, a desire that was not previously there, a desire that can only be supernaturally fulfilled. Romans 5.5 5 says, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts, 
through the Holy Spirit who has given us, who has been given to us. I love the words in 1 John because it puts an emphasis on abiding in God. John, 1 John 4, 15 through 16 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and, abide, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and, love, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So the love of God is reflected through the believer as light projecting out. 1 John 4 goes on to say in verses 12 through 13, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Okay, what a great depiction. Okay, we see this God abiding in us and us in him. This is the anchor of truth that makes it possible to be doers of the word as James talks about. Okay, be doers of the word and, and concerning our loving for one another doing good to one another, blessing one another, praying for one another, turning, turning our cheek and offering the other instead of offering insult for insult to one another. Okay, pretty much anything in our Christian walk needs to involve abiding in God. Another way other than obedience through Scripture that we can abide in God is through prayer, which brings us to our second point of, of loving others through prayer. Prayer has such power, and, and God can soften hearts through prayer. And the prayer may take time to do its work, but it's, it's prayer that says, God, take my pride, take my bitterness, take my selfishness, take my self-reliance. Remove this hardness from me that, that I'm able to pray for those who are hard to love or, or seem impossible to love. Whether others are, are persecuting us, abusing us, hating us, cursing us, as last week, Dave talking about excluding us or reviling us. Okay, we're called to pray for them. Now, this may look like family members or loved ones whose abuses may be small and annoying, whom we, we don't think of as enemies, but we, yet we treat them as enemies. Or maybe somebody out there who's physically seeking us out to cause damage, to hurt us. To make our lives just miserable. We're called to pray for them because we're called to love them. And since God is the source of love, we look to him to see what this model of prayer looks like. And for that, we, we look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Okay, Jesus shows and tells us how to pray. So as I read this here, um, I want to point out ways in which we can be in prayer on. Okay, Matthew 6, 9 through 13 starts off, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, right there, we're, pr we're praying for worship. We're dealing with worship. Your kingdom come. Okay, your kingdom, not my kingdom. We're dealing with allegiance, allegiance to God alone. 
your work be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deal with submission. Submission to God our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. Praying for petition, intercession. For, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Praying for confession. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Praying for deliverance. Deliverance from, from temptation. Deliverance from the evil one himself, Satan. So as you see someone, us, us loving someone should be praying for their salvation. Praying for the gospel to work in their lives. That's true love. So with that in mind, we should be praying that God would penetrate their hearts to see the holiness, reverence, and the treasure that he is. Pray that God rules as king, that he would change their hearts and have an allegiance towards him alone, not an allegiance towards self and others. Pray that with a changed heart, our enemies would have motives, joy, and a submission to do God's will. Pray that God would give them what they need to fulfill God's calling by, in their lives. Pray for petition. Pray for repentance in their hearts and confession to have forgiveness in their hearts, to have forgiving hearts. And finally, pray for protection of temptation, not leading them under the influence of the evil one, the devil. So I want us to see this now, all these things that we just mentioned, okay, some worship, allegiance, submission, Petition, confession, deliverance. Okay, all these things that we're, we're praying for others about. These are also things that we need to be praying for in our own lives. Okay, because we are, we're not going to be perfect in any one of those until, God, God come, or until Christ comes for us. God growing us in these areas, sanctifying us, okay, conforming us with this new mindset, renewing our mind as Romans 12, 2 says. We should be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Therefore, since this is what we should be praying for ourselves, we should all be also be praying for our enemy, enemies because, as we'll see in verse 31, we are to do unto others as we want done for ourselves, for God's glory. One pastor says this, Don't think you have loved your enemy if you only work and pray for his natural needs and omit his eternal needs. A heart that does not aim at its enemy's eternal, ex eternal joy is not the full orb, robust love that Jesus demands. Wow, that is convicting. Don't think you have loved your enemy if you only work and pray at his natural needs and omit his eternal needs. That's not the robust love that Jesus calls us to live. That is, that, that should just make, just hit us right between the eyes. I mean, really. I don't know how many of you like coffee. If you don't, bear with me for a second. All of you Mountain Dew lovers, I know who you are. Um, I, when I hear the word robust, okay, I think of coffee. It must be just good marketing because it seems to be on every coffee package, have robust flavor. But when I, when I read that word, I think of coffee. I like my coffee straight up black, which to me is the only way to drink a good cup of coffee. And, uh, <laughs> yes, thank you. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> I like a, a strong, bold, full-bodied, full-flavored, robust cup of joe. 
Okay? I want, I want to taste the richness and trueness in that coffee bean, how it's roasted. Okay? I don't, I don't want it. I don't like it masked by, um, and covered up by creamer and sugar and syrups and additives. Okay? I want the real deal. Not some watered down for 10 cup of coffee. So, for those of you who like it doctored up, that's fine. You're not my enemy. I still love you. We can go have a cup of coffee. But let me, let me ask you though, what's your prayer life look like? Is it watered down? Are your prayers bold? Are they full of the richness of, of God's word and love? Or are they masked by our selfish desires and love based on selfish motive? Hidden agendas, terms and conditions. Okay, praying for someone's eternal joy and for, and for our enemies is the deepest form of, of love. Because prayer is interceding with God on their behalf to do something good to happen to them. Such as turning away from their sin, a regenerated heart, an awareness and sorrowfulness of their sin. We pray for this because we know of the eternal consequences of hell that awaits for those who don't believe in Christ. Okay? An eternity of God's wrath poured upon them. An eternity of separation of God's goodness and grace. That's not something we should want for anyone, enemy or not. That's a robust prayer. We see this, look at the examples of Jesus on the cross. Stephen in the book of Acts. Okay, both of them praying for their enemies in the midst of their troubles and in the midst of people killing them. Jesus hanging on the cross after all he's gone through. Stephen getting stones and rocks just pelted at him. Okay, both of them saying, you know, God, forgive them for they know not what they do. These are amazing examples of a true heart for, and love for their enemies. Where they had eternal, me, eternal needs in mind for their enemies because they are being obedient in heart to God's word and are glorifying God in their radical love. We see in the story of Stephen that at his, at his stoning, a guy named Saul is standing there giving approval Saul, a guy who's a, a violent opponent of the gospel, an enemy of the Christian faith who persecuted Christians. Okay, Saul, the same guy who, who later in life has a, has a, a life-encountering change on a road called Damascus, gets renamed to Paul through his conversion by Jesus. Paul goes from an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christians, to being the greatest missionary we've ever known, we've ever seen and has writer much of, and writes much of the New Testament. What a great story to see how prayer is used. How God can use his people as instruments to carry out his, his plan. What a great challenge this can be for us in our prayer life. Lastly, our, our point that rounds out how we can love others biblically is deals with Christ-like living. Okay, now this may look like several things, but what I want us to focus on here today is how we respond to others and our, our motives for, for giving and lending and how we can go above and beyond to do good for one another. As we read further in our text, we see that in verses 29 through 31 mention nothing about seeking retaliation or returning evil for evil. Verse 29, it talks about getting struck on the cheek and turning the other cheek to offer. Okay, in Jewish culture, this was meant as an insult. 
because a, a slap was from the right hand to the right side of the face, which was a backhand. Okay, and in similar way, we can see that insult administered in a, in a backhanded comment, a comment that's rooted in, in hate and jealousy, envy, pride, self-exaltation. Okay, Jesus is saying, if someone insults you, turn the other cheek and don't return insult for insult. Now, I don't know about you guys in the last couple months um, with the COVID-19, you guys might have seen a spike in this area amongst your marriage, your spouse, amongst, you know, kids, kids with their siblings. Okay, the last two and a half months, um, thankfully, I've been able to uh, work from home. The kids have been doing their e-learning thing. My wife's been helping them get through that. We really enjoyed this time as a family. It's, it's really... Uh, allowed us to do things that we when we normally wouldn't be able to do on a busy schedule. So we've really embraced kind of the, the slowness of it. But it's also, it's also caused times of tension to surface because being in this house stuck day after day with one another, you know, an increase of, of noise, increase of attitudes, teasing, arguing, bickering. I know we've had our moments as a family, but it's this concoction that that can cause us to easily be angered, short-tempered, start lobbing insults like bombs, just, just tearing each other down. At the beginning of all this, my wife wrote down um, a verse that we, would, that we us as a family kind of wanted to live by for who knows at that time. We weren't thinking two and a half months, but one that we wanted to commit to memory, Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. That's a great verse when you're stuck in the house day after day with, a lot of, with, with people. <laughs> I encourage us to stop and pray before we open our mouths and our responses to be slow to anger and slow to speak, as James talks about. In verse 30, it talks about giving and helping those in need, not expecting anything in return or demanding something back. Okay, a disciple must be free from the love of possessions, ready to part with them in, in hope of the secure reward awaiting God's children. Okay, you've heard store our treasure up in heaven, not on, on the things of this earth. Talks about this in verse 35. These are moments to give and to lend generously, not moments to exploit the other person and, and turn a wonderful opportunity into, to help into one of personal gain. The Old Testament speaks out against uh, such, taking advantage of those in, those in need and, and of the poor. Exodus 22, 25, Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, Leviticus 25, 35 through 37. Okay, this isn't just a New Testament thing. Now, I will say it's good and God-honoring to exercise wisdom and reason in our giving, okay, because we are called to be good stewards of our time and money, right? But the principle we see here is, is a matter of, of the heart. We need to be genuine in our, in our giving and lending. Don't have an attitude of, of, of taking advantage of someone in need for profit. Okay, this reminds me of the story of Jesus cleansing the temple during Passover. Jesus walks in, sees the merchants um, taking advantage, and Jesus starts overturning the money changer tables because he sees them preying upon the needy, exploiting their needs for profit. 
How deceptive, how manipulative is that? This mindset is deceiving and, and not God-honoring, and we can fall subject to that too. We need to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, am I treating others how I want to be treated? Okay, now that's something that should ring back, shoot, all the way to the grade school, right? Treat others how you want to be treated. I remember getting a, a ruler with a golden rule on it back in elementary school with that written on it. Verse 31, the golden rule. CSB says it this way. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. Okay, listen, this doesn't mean do good things to others so that good in return is done to you. Again, like loving, it's not, it, should, it shouldn't be treated as a contract or be conditional. We are not to just go through motions of kindness so we get what we want. This isn't, how, this isn't what Jesus teaches. Jesus is always about us seeking to put others first before our own selves. Paul says in Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Okay, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the ruling principle of Christian freedom. So to properly fulfill the golden rule is through love, a selfless, sacrificial love. A love that can be generated only from the purest source, God himself. Okay, our golden rule is going to look much different. It's going to be filled with self-driven motive. God's golden rule is going to be about loving others in a, in a countercultural, unnatural way that glorifies him. To which this should cause us to, uh, for, 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 to cause people looking on the outside again to say, hmm, that's what love looks like. Wow, that is different. That is not what I'm used to seeing. That's something I want. That's a different person right there. Before Christ, there were different versions of the golden rule through rabbinic writings, ancient thinkers, even Hinduism and Buddhism. All of them cast a, a, the rule as a negative form. Okay, Some of them call it the silver rule. It says this, Do not do to others what you do not want done to you. Okay, Jesus is different. Jesus makes it a positive command, enriching its meaning to proactively do for others the good once for oneself. Think about it. Isn't it easier to tell ourselves not to do something than to go above and beyond to do something? Okay, I see this as a parent. Thankfully, I've grown in this. But sometimes I focus more on the, you know, hey, don't, don't do this. Don't gossip about somebody else. You know, don't make fun. Don't ridicule that other person when he's being made fun of. That's all good. Don't stop doing that stuff. But I think it's, it's even more important to come alongside them and, and do good and go above and beyond and say, hey, why don't you, that person that's getting made fun of, come alongside them. Lift them up. Encourage them. Build them up. Love on them when others are making fun of them at their expense. Go above and beyond. Don't just be satisfied with the don't do's. As we see in verses 32 and 34, believers in Christ are to be characterized by our, by our actions and words. Being doers of the word again, right? We're called to be different than the world, to be different from unbelievers. As the text says, for even sinners return the love someone has shown them or do good to someone as sort of a repayment or lend when they are certain to be repaid. There's no spiritual credit in the eyes of God for such behavior. 
since, the sin, since sinners live in, the, in that way. Okay, then verse 35 hits and how we are to be different. But, but love your enemies. Do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God still showers what's called His common grace upon the unbelieving every day. He showers His mercies upon, His mercies are new every morning. We are recipients of that glorious mercy and His saving grace through faith because of Christ. Let's be merciful even as our Heavenly Father, for, even, even our Heavenly Father is merciful to us. Because we know our reward will be great because we are doing the Lord's work and being obedient to His Word when we trust God with how we are loving. As we close, I want to encourage you to, to reread this text. Pray on it. This is tough. Hard thing to do. Meditate on this text. Specifically point out somebody. Think about somebody who is hard to love. Might be somebody in your family, friend, co-worker. Okay? Reflect on how we're loving. Are we loving by abiding in God, in His Word? Loving through prayer. Loving through Christ-like living. I pray God would humble us to, for us to love others not merely as they deserve but beyond what they deserve and to love just as Christ loved us. I think Dave's going to go ahead and close us out here. I want to encourage us uh, with First uh, John chapter 3. This is how we have come to know love. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. We should lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. May the love of Christ rule our hearts in the coming days. Father God, we are yet another week has gone by where we have been soberly reminded that this world is in desperate need of the gospel. This world is in desperate need to know and experience the love of Jesus Christ. We know that that love reconciles, it restores, it brings peace, both vertically in our relationship with you as well as toward one another as brothers and sisters, as people who have been made in the image and likeness of God. I pray that we would be a people who would allow the love of Christ welcome it, receive it, ask for the love of Christ to rule our hearts, to transform our hearts, that we would raise the next generation to be transformed by the gospel as well, and that we would go out and love our neighbor, love our brother and sister, because we have come to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding, the love of Christ that we see in the sacrificial and selfless death and resurrection. Thank you that we can know you in relationship. And I pray that we would be a light and a witness to that love in the coming week. We love you. We serve you. We thank you. And we are grateful that you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.